Anger is nothing but love in motion when someone or something you love is under threat. And that means that if you look at the things in your heart that most anger you and then ask this question, what am I defending? And that's the reason why when the Bible says God is angry all the time, it's because he loves us. And he's angry at the cancer of sin that's destroying the human race which he made and he loves with his whole being. Today on the Songtime Broadcast, we ask the question, how do we deal with the anger of God? Maybe you struggle with this. Maybe you have really kind of come up against this and don't want to even see God as an angry God, one who is who cannot tolerate sin. We love God. We want to see God as a loving Father. But how do we deal with His anger? Stay tuned for that message from Timothy Keller as we continue our series of Proverb a Day in May. And this conversation coming up right now with Matt Rhodes, we'll talk about missions, modern day missions, and how we can reach New England with the gospel. The many voices are coming together for that one message. I'm your host, Adam Miller. You're listening to Songtime Radio. Over the past decade of living here on Cape Cod and serving New England as a ministry, I've watched and observed quite a bit. I like to watch. I, I, I was a the baby growing up. I watched my older sisters. I was an observer. I was one in the shadows, always watching, a kind of a, 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 a wallflower, always observing what was happening around me. And that's kind of a, a little bit my, my skill set or my comfort level. I, I like to watch and evaluate and just, to see what works and what doesn't work. And over the past 10 years, I've been watching a lot of ministries here in New England rise and fall. I've seen a lot of pastors come and go. And I've noticed that a lot of strategies seem to work in other places that don't work necessarily right here in New England. While I've watched some churches grow out of nothing, others who had great status in the community dissolve down to nothing. And and the question remains, what are the strategies that are working and what are the strategies that aren't working? And, and why does it work in one town and the next town right over, it doesn't work at all? That's why I'm excited to be joined once again by Matt Rhodes. He's a missionary in North Africa, as well as the author of a new book called No Shortcut to Success, a manifesto for modern missions. And, and Matt, you talk a little bit about this, so I want to get into the structure of your book here because you have a few warnings here, especially when things seem to be going really, really well, you you have a little bit of a warning that maybe the strategy might seem to be working, but mess up something that at a a greater scale, what works now may not actually be helpful down the road. Explain to us a little bit more about that. Well, I I think for a few reasons. First of all, numbers are a really one-dimensional way of measuring success. And I think it's it's often easy when we see a, a church that's grown really large to think if I did the if I did the same thing that pastor did, I could build my church to that size, or you know, for a missionary, I could plant churches of that size, and that's just not the case. So God often works despite our failures, and you know, the fact that a pastor has an enormous church doesn't mean that the pastor is ministering wisely or even walking closely with God. And I I think that's one of the things that we've learned in some of these scandals. Mm. There's a, there's some sort of celebrity mindset and you certainly having access with the internet. And I got to speak for myself. I mean, we're literally in the mainstream media with radio and the internet and we promote stuff. So I get it to being a part of the industry, so to speak. And yet, uh, there's a challenge in in really elevating uh, speakers and teachers beyond their physical platform, the people that they can actually minister to directly. That is rather dangerous. 
There really is. And I, I think some of it is, is inevitable. You know, if I'm searching for a new book and there's a, an author who I respect, if, if John Piper has recommended that book, I'm more likely to buy it. Um, but there is a danger because all of our leaders are, are only men and women just like ourselves and any one of them, you know, could, could fall. And we need to pray for them, but we also need to, to not elevate them too much. Hmm. Now, when you survey what has been taking place in the world uh, of missions, um, why is it needing to be readdressed? What are some of the problems that we're facing with the mission field right now that have kind of uh, lost our, our directive or focus in the Great Commission? Well, I think there are a number of things. I, I, I do think because of the urgency with which we want to, to reach these groups of people who, who haven't been reached with the gospel, there we really do want to work as quickly as possible. And that's a good motivation. But I think in recent years, it has transformed a lot of our approach to missions. A much higher proportion of missionaries on the field now are short-termers. And so historically, we have, you know, we hear Adoniram Judson, he's arguing that even missionaries who come for only three to five years are going to be leaving the field as soon as they finally become useful. And now, with a lot of our missions force being there for just a couple months at a time, we've really changed our approach. Uh, with with the context of where we're at as a a church, uh, many churches here, particularly in New England, they're seeing that struggle, that the the slow growth, and uh, in many ways heartbreaking growth. And with that, there's this feeling that with everything we're seeing online, especially with churches that are doing amazing we feel like we're failing in some way. There's there's a negative feeling that happens to people that are trying to do things faithfully, that they're feeling that they're inadequate. Yeah, I think there's there's nothing more that feels more affirming than tangible success. And so we, we do want to see numbers growing. But historically, the church has, it has grown, it has gone through periods of growth and shrinking, and neither one of those is inherently more successful than the other. I think we do see the gospel, you know, in, in, in Colossians 1, described as something that is growing throughout the world. So ultimately, the church is going to grow. But it can be a thing of two steps forward, one step back. Mm. Have you, uh, I don't know, I, we probably could have talked about this before we started the interview, but uh, a very influential book for me that I read when I was uh, in high school was uh, Have We No Rights by Maybelle Williamson. Uh, writes about as a missionary to China and her experiences. And a lot of the things even back then that they were realizing that they were essentially just planting Western churches in China and and they weren't really seeing how to actually minister to the Chinese people. That became a problem that I think really helped and shaped missions in the, uh, uh, the mid-20th uh, century. But now we're in the 21st century and we still have a lot of lessons to learn, don't we? That's right. You know, I, I'm often struck when I come back to the States by how different the questions are that people have here about Christ from the questions that people will have in North Africa where I work. And it's not that in either, you know, in either setting there's a one-size-fits-all way of doing evangelism, but we really do need to know how to relate to people's questions, how to answer them persuasively and gently. And so, you know, here a lot of people are very concerned about would God really give these types of rules about sexuality? Um, and Or does science contradict the Bible? 
in North Africa, those things are taken for granted. It's a whole different set of questions that we need to respond to. We've been talking with Matt Rhodes about his book. It's called No Shortcut to Success, a Manifesto for Modern Missions. You can find out more information about his book by giving us a call. It's 508-362-7070. I think it's about time that we evaluate, especially within our own context. And there's so many different subcultures, even here in New England, Uh, The rural areas are very different than the urban areas. The cities are so vastly different than the the farming communities. It, It really does require us to have a very clear and nuanced approach to missions. And that's ultimately what we're seeking as we're studying a proverb a day in May. We're, we're wanting to understand nuance. We're wanting to understand wisdom and how to navigate our own present day circumstances. There's a lot of things that cause us to be frustrated, especially when you come up against a, a problem that you cannot face. And that is why the Word of God gives us guidance. It guides our path. It directs us. It is a light to our feet. We need scriptures and we need the book of Proverbs, to help give us wisdom. That's where we're going to be going today as we continue our study, a proverb a day in May. This week, breaking down the theme of anger. We hear from Dr. Ted uh, uh, Timothy Keller, who is the pastor of Redeemer Church in New York City, as he breaks down this theme throughout the book of Proverbs. The theme of anger, in particular asking this question, how do we deal with the anger of God? Do we deal with it? Do we try to avoid it altogether? Do we try to obfuscate that, that God is actually angry? He cannot tolerate sin, and, and his anger is actually what drove Jesus to the cross, so that that Jesus would pay the penalty, take all of his anger so that we could be saved. How do we deal with that component of God's nature? In this message, we'll talk a little bit more about the anger of God and anger as a theme in the book of Proverbs. Do you see the destructive power, the enormous destructive power, the ability to disintegrate things that anger has? But that's not all you need to see. Proverbs doesn't just tell us about it's a dangerous power. On the other hand, Proverbs says some astounding, the Bible says astoundingly positive things about uh, anger because according to the Bible, anger is basically a good thing. Notice in the very center of the list of Proverbs, you have uh, the fifth proverb here in our list. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. The ideal in Proverbs, the ideal in the Bible is not no anger, We're not blowing up, not no anger, not blowing anger, but slow anger is the ideal. It is a sin to never get angry. It's a sin to blow up with your anger. According to the Bible, the ideal is slow anger. You say, what? It's a sin to never get angry? I thought good people didn't get angry. That's not what the Bible says. Slow to anger, that's the wise man or woman. That's the ideal. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Paul says, be angry but sin not. What? Be angry. Not, he doesn't say, well, some people are going to be angry eventually, but if so, try to minimize the damage. It's an imperative. Not, you will be angry. We should be angry sometimes. Be angry, but sin not. John Chrysostom, an early Christian preacher, summarized the biblical understanding of anger perfectly and shows how positive the biblical view of anger is. Listen, here's the perfect Perfect summary. He says, he that is angry without cause sins, but he who is not angry when there is cause sins. For unreasonable patience 
is the hotbed of many vices. That is really weird. Not no anger and not blow anger, but slow anger. Because no anger and blow anger are sins. Slow anger is the way to be. Why? Because that's how God is. Slow to anger, which is the mark of the wise person here, is an attribute of God. The Bible again and again says God is slow to anger. In fact, when Moses meets God on the mountain of Sinai in Exodus 34, and Moses says, show me your glory. Tell me the essence of who you are. God says, I will declare my name for you. And you know what he says? He says, I am the Lord, slow to anger. That's my glory. I get angry, but I'm slow about it. Now, a lot of modern New Yorkers have a lot of trouble here, a whole lot of trouble. They say, I believe in a God of love, not a God who gets angry. But if you have a God who never gets angry, you can't have a God of love because if you never, ever get angry about anything, you don't love anything. Because if you love and you see the thing you love threatened, you be, you're angry. If you're indifferent, you're not in love. And Becky Pipper puts it perfectly when she says, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. The more a father loves his son, the more he's angry at the drunkard, the liar, the traitor in the son. And if I, a flawed, self-centered woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them? Now, see, here's what it's saying. True love always gets angry. In fact, we can even be stronger than that. Love, in its uncorrupted origin is just love move to deal with a threat to someone you love. You know what anger is in its origin, originally? You know what anger is in its pure form, the way it's supposed to be? Anger is love in motion toward a threat to that which you love. If something you really love is threatened, you get angry at the thing that's threatening it, and that's why, angry pul- that's why anger pulverizes. That's the reason anger disintegrates. It disintegrates the thing that's endangering that which you love. Anger is nothing but love in motion when someone or something you love is under threat. And if you look at those things, I mean, this is really wild. You know, anger originally was, until it got corrupted, we'll talk about that in a second, a form of love. And that means that if you look at the things in your heart that most anger you and then ask this question, what am I defending? Look at the things that that get you the most angry and say, what are you defending? And you have an answer to the things your heart loves the most. The answer is the things your heart loves the most. And that's the reason why when the Bible says God is angry all the time, it's because he loves us. And he hates, and he's angry at the cancer of sin that's destroying the human race which he made, and he loves with his whole being. And if you look at Jesus, who the Bible continually says is perfect, you'll see him getting angry. He's angry at the money changers in the temple, John 2. He's angry at the religious leaders, Mark 3. He's angry at the tomb of Lazarus, John 11. Very often, the the Greek words describing his emotions are incredibly strong. He bellows with anger. He snorts with anger. Why would Jesus Christ get so angry? Because he's a man of love, of perfect love, of pure love. That's why he's getting angry. He gets angry, but he sins not. Now, do you see that individualistic cultures who put all this emphasis on getting your rights, hold up anger as too positive and say express it. And moral traditional cultures that some of you are from, where all the emphasis is not on the individual but on the family and on on doing the right thing and on the tribe and on the clan, they make you suppress the anger. Anger is seen as a very negative thing. Good people don't get angry. The Bible has nothing to do with either of those kinds of cultures. The Bible has a unique approach. It sees its 
basic goodness and yet it's destructive and dangerous power. Today's proverb a day in May comes from Proverbs chapter 17. Now I have a lot of proverbs here in chapter 17 that I like, but today I'm going to settle in on verse 22. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. We've been talking a lot about anger today, and this week we're unpacking the theme of anger in the book of Proverbs. The contrast to that is joy, isn't it? A joyful heart that is is just happy and, and, and full of gladness and, and, and thanksgiving, so many things to give thanks for. It is good medicine. It's medicine to the bones and the body that aches so much with the, the cares and the concerns of this world. To sit around and to, to laugh and to enjoy one another's company, we're able to set aside the things, the, the, the fears and the anxieties and the hurts and the pains that we've experienced uh, throughout our lives. But a crushed spirit says it dries up the bones. This latter half really re- reminds us of, of how the circumstances of this world are absolutely crushing. We live in a world that is uh, against God. It is fighting against God. Sin is prevalent. It's not just out there in the world. It's also in us. And as a result, we are bearing the weight of the consequences of our choices, the consequences of our sin here in this lifetime. But in all of that, we're reminded by Jesus who says, come to me, all who are weak and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, which is easy and light, and learn from me. What a beautiful picture that Jesus gives to us as he understands that this world has so many things that can crush our spirit. And although we might be taken out of that moment in a, in a, a little bit of picture of joy, being with people that we love and celebration and all of these great attributes, we're also reminded again and again that we live in a world that is broken, a world that will crush us. And yet, in that world, Jesus speaks directly to us. Come to me, take my yoke upon me, uh, upon you, and learn from me. He is meek and lowly. He comes and meets us in our lowly estate. And then he invites us to join with him in a greater purpose and calls us to be joyful, to be joyful in the Lord. And that joy is not circumstantially based. It's not based on the, the elements of, of whether or not you're, you're being happily uh, catered to, that, that you're celebrating something. You're, you can actually have joy in every aspect of life because our joy is in the Lord and our hope is in Him. I hope that this challenges you, and I hope that you're following along with us in a proverb a day in May. Reading the book of Proverbs helps us to understand the complexities of life and teaches us the wisdom and the nuance of being able to discern between fine details. I hope that it's challenged you today. And if it has, we would love to hear from you. You can write to us at Songtime Radio, P.O. Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630. Or you can give us a call. It's 508-362-7070. That's 508-362-7070. You can also head over to our website at songtime.com or look us up on social media. But don't forget to tune in again tomorrow. We'll continue our study talking about the subject of anger and exploring when and where to use it in its proper context. Loving anger always seeks to do a surgical strike on the evil. But in disordered anger, you don't go after the problem, you go after the person. 
On behalf of everyone here at Songtime and our late founder, Dr. John DeBrine, who has always encouraged you to grow in grace so that you won't groan in disgrace, we want to thank you for listening. From Cape Cod, I'm Adam Miller with our theme verse. It's Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it.